This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agapimatch.com. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer your dating and relationship questions on the podcast and online. If you're not already following me, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Matchmaker Maria. And hey, while you're at it, follow the podcast on there. It's Ask a Matchmaker and also subscribe to the podcast. This way you get the new episodes every Wednesday when they drop. This week's topic is about navigating fertility. My guests are Layla Bilali and Elizabeth Lipov. Layla founded her fertility consulting and nursing services business, Fertility Together, to bridge the gap between a clinic and patient and fertility treatment and personalized care. She believes that a nurturing, knowledgeable partner can make all the difference in each individual's unique path to fertility, whether they're just curious about where they stand and what their options are, freezing their eggs or going all the way with IVF. Layla provides personalization, continuity, continuity of care, proper education, and endless encouragement. Joining us is Elizabeth Lipov, who works at a healthcare tech startup that services fertility patients across the country. She worked at a large fertility clinic in New York City for over four years as an IVF coordinator. She's worked with couples, single women, and oncology patients who were preserving their fertility prior to treatment start. Ladies, welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Hi, thank you for having us. Hi. Okay, so navigating fertility, I have like so many questions for this uh, episode. So um, first off, I, you know, I want to ask, like, how did you get into this? Like, what kind of education do you need? You know, like my first thoughts are like, are they OBGYNs? Like, what is what does it take to get into the fertility uh, part of healthcare? Yeah, so um, the physicians that we work for are uh, OBGYNs uh, first. And then after they complete their uh, OBGYN residency, they go through a um, reproductive endocrinology, which is a fertility specialist. Uh, They go through their reproductive endocrinology uh, fellowship. So they're all OBGYN trained first. Um, Mm -hmm. And then for me as a nurse, um, I mean, as a nurse, you can work in any field. They just train you on the spot. So I worked in pediatrics before this, and now I've worked in fertility for almost eight years. Wow. And are where are you? So this is Layla speaking. Where are you based out of Layla? I am based out of the tri-state area. I still work at a uh, private fertility clinic in New York City. And then I service clients all over the country. Um, I've even had uh, clients in Dubai. So uh, a lot of my virtual services are all over, but um, locally it's the New York City area. Are there, since you just mentioned Dubai, like, are there any laws when it comes to like state by state or international when it comes to these certain, you know, this, these sort of healthcare procedures? Yeah, actually one of the biggest things that we um, see our international clients for at the clinics here um, in the States uh, is uh, sex selection. So when you're choosing uh, which sex of um, embryo you want to put in, male or female. Um, a lot of places in the Middle East and even places in Europe uh, don't allow for sex selection. So a lot of people come to the States for IVF 
for that um, if they're doing any sort of family balancing and, and selecting uh, the sex of the embryo they would like to use. Um, uh, I had no and, idea that that was yeah. an option. Like right now you're blowing my mind. Um, what? Yeah. And I it's illegal you in a lot of places. And uh, like, for example, in Germany, you can't even test the embryos, much less select the sex. You can't test them at all. You can't do any sort of testing ahead of time. So. Well, I can understand. <laughs> I mean, that just is also like, I think, a historical precedence uh, for that region. Um, but yeah, you know, okay, that's, wow, I did not know that. And um, Lisa, how about you? Where are you based out of? And um, what is your background? So I'm also based out of New York. Um, I kind of got into the fertility field right out of college. Um, I was looking for a job. I always knew I wanted to work in healthcare. I wasn't always completely sure where I wanted to be. And as you know, I found a job at um, a private fertility clinic in New York where Layla and I met. And um, I kind of fell in love with the field. And you've all been working uh, in that field or adjacent to that field since then. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, you just talked about testing. Are there like a host of other tests that happen in the United States that might not happen in other countries? Um, the standard fertility testing that we do is, is kind of universal. Um, it's just that the specifics when it comes to selection of embryos and things like that that might be different worldwide and again you know like you said it's, it's a historical thing uh, whether a country is based on religious laws um, things like that so typically here um, for for the IVF process before you transfer an embryo that you've made back into the uterus we typically test it to make sure that it's chromosomally normal so 46XX is a female, 46XY is a normal male, um, and that's what we're checking for before putting it back into the uterus to ensure um, that it's a normal um, fetus eventually, hopefully. Um, but the, the testing that we can do here, um, it's not legal in, in a couple of places in the Middle East, a couple of places in Europe, and I'm sure other places in the world. And a lot of people do and do IVF for sex selection and they call it family balancing is the technical term. Um, let's say you have two girls and you want a boy so you come and make embryos and then whichever one whichever ones are male after the chromosomal testing are the ones that you would you know end up using. Um, but the universal testing like the blood work and the radiology exams, ultrasounds, things like that are, are pretty much They're the pretty same. standard. Yeah. yeah. Um, so tell me more about the people that you know, you see at, at your treatment center? Uh, we see it, you know, New York City kind of is, um, you know, not to be corny, but it is really a melting pot. So we see all sorts of different cultures, religions, um, and those kinds of things do affect, you know, the ages. So yes, um, the average patient that we see is somewhere between 35 and 42 uh, in New York and in other big cities where fertility clinics thrive, Miami, Chicago, LA, San Francisco. Um, females are very career oriented. They're not getting married until later. They're not thinking about having kids until later. Um, even if they're doing single mom by choice, um, they're waiting until they're kind of you know, set in their careers and they're financially stable before doing so. So um, age-wise, our average patient is somewhere between 35 and 42. Um, but going back to religious and cultural things, we have um, the Orthodox Jewish population. We see as young as 
you know, 2021. Um, we have more. Why, why do you, why would you see someone at that age? Um, it, it could be all sorts of things. A lot of the genetic testing that we do is in cultures like that. If there are a lot of, um, not necessarily consanguineous, meaning that they're related, but if there are offshoots of their relations, uh, we want to make sure that, uh, we're checking their genetics to, uh, ensure that we're not going to duplicate any you know, severe illnesses. So certain cultures have a certain set of genetics that we see over and over again. For example, in the uh, Jewish population, there's a whole list of them that we test for um, that are very common in that population. So do they people might- ever come before they get married? They do, yeah. Um, they do um, before they even get engaged sometimes. That's part of their, um, you know, dating uh, partnership workup is getting their genetic testing done to make sure that they're not carriers of the same illnesses, um, in which case it would be an issue for, you know, having children but wouldn't it, how How soon could you test for, you know, this these sort of genes that you might have? Because, like, for instance, um, like, I'm Greek, right? And mm-hmm. in my community, there is um, Mediterranean anemia. Um, in fact, I think I remember uh, when I was pregnant in New York, every time I filled out a form at my OBGYN, it would be like, it would say like Asian, black, and then it would say Jewish, Greek. Like it was like broken, like everything else was like these big globs and like Jewish and Greek were broken down. And it's because of, just like you said, there are certain genetic things that are with each region. And mm-hmm. like the thing that I've understood is that like, for instance, if I had Mediterranean anemia, I would know that I would have, you know, certain deficiencies that I would have to manage my whole life. Um, I don't, and and if I think, and if I had that, I would go out of my way not to date someone who also has that, even if it, I mean, in a dominant, right. I wouldn't know recessive unless I get them tested. Right. Um, but how quickly could someone, um, I I mean, would they even come to you or they just go get a genetic test in that community to know these things? You get the blood work done through any, any provider can prescribe it. It really doesn't have to be a fertility clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it really just depends on which panel you're looking to do. Certain panels can only be done at certain clinics or OBGYNs that have a partnership with that uh, company that runs that panel. Um, and then others, you can, you can even have your PCP, uh, pers- you know, give you the right. lab order for it and have your blood drawn. And then use that to date people. Yeah, you'll see if I'm a carrier for the same thing as this person, you know, so every time every pregnancy would be a one in four chance that my child would have this recessive disorder, I may not, you know, go further with that unless, of course, if you have the means to and and you uh, want to go through the IVF process, you can always bypass um, that and... So if you did IVF, if you were with a partner where you both have, let's say, a recessive gene, if you did IVF, then you could... You could select which embryo doesn't have. Correct. They build a probe. It takes I did a, not know this. I don't know anything about this, so it's so interesting to. Uh, I thought I thought you just make the embryos and then you just shove them up the vagina and that's the end of the day. It's like whatever sticks. You but you're telling me that there's all these tests before now, and I'm like, oh, you okay. Can. You can do it untested, <laughs> and a lot of clinics, depending on your age and background and things like that, will do untested embryos. Um, but you do have the option, or let's say you do. You know, you 
fall in love with someone and you're both carriers of cystic fibrosis, which is right. obviously something, you know, very um, uh, detrimental. And so you guys can build a probe and that probe will check each embryo to see if that embryo has cystic fibrosis or not prior to using it. Does your, the would health insurance cover these things or is this all out of pocket? It depends on your insurance. Yeah, Lisa would know more about this. I'll let you take that part, Lisa. Yeah, so I, it depends. Um, some insurances will cover, um, you know, like you'll have a lifetime maximum, they'll cover that amount, or you'll have a certain amount of rounds that you can do that they will cover. Um, some insurances will, you know, cover if there's a certain genetic disorder and there is a health reason for doing this. So it really depends on your plan and, um, you know, patients can call their insurance to see exactly the full breakdown. Some clinics will help them do that investigation. So um, unfortunately, there's no direct answer and it's pretty much it depends on your plan. But there what, are um, insurances that will cover it. What, let's, let's say I had a recessive gene, like you just mentioned cystic fibrosis, right? And let's mm -hmm. say my partner, I, we know that he has that too. Um, do you think, is there like a social worker in the office or in most fertility treatments who could help me navigate, like, you know, if we want to avoid something that's, that's going to be very hard to, I mean, you just said detrimental, um, especially in someone's financial future, um, would, would a social worker then talk on your behalf to, to, to you know, I, I'm thinking about the heavy lifting that comes before mm -hmm. doing this, right? Right. The logistics. Uh, and, and Lisa, you, you worked with that part of it. So do you mean in terms of insurance or just like for the couple in general? Both. So for insurance, I mean, it's all, you know, the office would have to submit on the patient's behalf of their full medical history, oh. their reasoning for doing this, and then they will determine if they're eligible for coverage um, or not. Um, but a lot of clinics will give you kind of like I was an IVF coordinator. So I was kind of the person who planned everything out with the patient in terms of their schedule, but also kind of walking them through the process and kind of, you know, almost hand holding sometimes because, you know, it, it is a very difficult process and it's very emotional. And sometimes you kind of need that extra support if you don't want to go out and, you know, discuss it with your family and friends. It's nice to have kind of that unbiased person who has kind of the knowledge of what you're going through mm. and can be that support for you. You know, you mentioned the kinds of patients that you have. Um, talk to me a little bit more about more about that. So you, you obviously have people that are married and are family planning. Mm -hmm. um, do you have unmarried couples who, I mean, people who are not interested in getting married, but are interested in IVF? Yeah. Um, and I'd love to learn more about, you know, single women who want to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. um, and oncology patients, of course, too. So tell me more about the, your different patients that you yeah. uh, help. So some women uh, choose to be single mothers by choice. And, you know, I feel like um, it's becoming more common if, you know, by certain age, some people will say, you know, by certain age, if I don't meet my person, I know I want to be a mother and they will use um, donor sperm banks and buy donor sperm transferred into their clinic and they will use that sperm vial in order to create their embryos and go through with the process um i feel like in bigger cities you know that's i wouldn't say that's an uncommon thing yeah um, you don't have to do ivf by the way for single mom by right. choice you can do an iui as well it's uh, called um, an intrauterine insemination uh, where they basically take a catheter 
put the donor sperm in the catheter and they insert it directly into your uterus. When you're ovulating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you don't have to do IVF for that. Do you have to, can you do this at home or do you have to go into um, a clinic? So they do have kits now. Um, Back in the day, they used to use the slang term turkey basting. Okay. (laughs) That's actually what they used to refer to it as. Um, And now they have legitimate kits. A lot of fertility companies have made and they sell legitimate kits for this that you can do at home. Um, It's obviously a little bit more blind at home without the um, ultrasound guidance and things like that that your clinic will do. Um, But you can do it at home and the success rate isn't as low as you would think it is. It works. Do you think, uh, do you find yourselves when a woman, I have had a few friends become mothers by choice. Um, and actually, if you ask me for my personal pain, I think it's a wonderful decision. It really takes away the stress of like, oh God, I have to find a partner by this time. And just like, you know, take anyone. And it's like, well, right. no, you have to make sure this is a really good person because you're going to, even if it doesn't work out, you still have to talk to them for at least the next 18 years. So this is a really important relationship you're going to have with this person. Don't go right. into it lightly. And in fact, you know, as a dating professional, one of the things I'm always reminding women if they are thinking about going at it alone is like, you know, if you go at it alone, you become a single mom. Um, you know, suddenly there is this group of single men, single fathers who only want to date single moms that now you will have access to that you just did not have access to before. So, right. you know, that's like a definitely a pro. But what are the questions that you hear from women um, who are interested in doing it by themselves? Like what questions do they have when they come in? I think a big one is like, how do I choose my donor? And um, like, what do I do for that? I don't know, Lila, what do you hear? I, the big question that we get is, do I, let's say everything works out and I have my kids, do I tell them that I used a sperm donor? Who do I tell them is their father? Who do I tell them that I used? Um, And there are, you know, therapists that, that specialize in this and they'll help you navigate do you tell them when do you tell them you know what age is appropriate to tell them and um if you use a non-anonymous donor a donor that is willing to be found later on let's say my kid wants to find out who the donor sperm was and some of these donors now you can choose to be non-anonymous and they can go and find out who you are can the mom find out like who the donor is yeah there's fewer of those. Most of them are anonymous, but okay. now there's the option. Um, I just like picturing out. a woman finding out who her donor is and like Instagram stalking him in her second <laughs> trimester. Um, not necessarily because she wants to be with him. No, no, no. Just being like, you know, right? Okay, this in- is the sperm I have in me. Got it. You know, these yeah. are the other twenty-three chromosomes of my child. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, when they're choosing the sperm donor, um, most of these uh, banks now they have like, you know, full websites and all of these donors have their own profiles. Um, Majority of them, I would say, are probably baby pictures, but they have like their biography, their interest, um, their background, their age, you know, kind of all of this information that you would want to know is on there. So that's how they choose their sperm. But how much of that is so when you say baby photos, you're talking about like baby, baby photos, or do you think like they have like a photo of the man when he was like five or six? They're more like toddler photos. Yeah. More what? 
Yeah, they're more like toddler to okay. maybe like I would say max age 10. And what is the advice here? Like, do you choose someone who looks like you? Do you choose someone who's the same race as you? Like, what are the what's the advice that's being given to women who are thinking the about doing clini- it alone? The clinical advice that I would add that I do always give is go based on the physical, not, you know, what school they've listed, like what college they graduated from, what career they're in. Those kinds of things are not DNA backed. So I don't know if someone went to Harvard because they have legacy there or, you know, if it was actually based on merit. You don't know those things, but I can just put on there that I graduated from Harvard. So what? Oh, gosh, there's no verification. There's no like LinkedIn double no. opt-in here? No, there isn't. And and again, those things aren't really backed by DNA. What's backed right. by DNA is, is my kid gonna have brown hair, brown eyes? Um, is my kid gonna have dark skin, light skin? Um, is there a place? Is there a place in the profiles where people can talk about like their temperament at least? Because that's yeah. that is genetic. Yeah, they do. Um, there are there is a place for that, and also what's what's kind of cool is that the staff at the sperm bank, um, at some of these places, they have a whole thing that the staff fills out. So they do first impressions of the guy oh. when he walks in, um, and they write out, you know, my first impression of him, and he was dressed like this. They do celebrity lookalikes. Um, so, so it's pretty, pretty extensive. Wow. I like the first, I would base it all on first impression. I want to know, like, I want to see the nurse totally. or the doctor who wrote, like, don't, don't do this. <laughs> don't do it with this guy. Red flag. Red flag. Um, okay. So then how about, um, do couples come in that, um, what, so when a couple comes in, that's let's say dating or married, um, what how soon can they come in? I think, you know, whenever they're ready. Um, I also think, you know, a lot of people, like what Layla mentioned before, is um, people do choose to start families a little bit later nowadays. And um, a lot of people come in for embryo freezing, for fertility preservation. So let's mm-hmm. say they're not ready to have kids just yet, but they know they will be a few years down the line, but they may think they'll be like older by, you know, a little bit older by then and have better chances now. So they'll freeze their embryos and use them later on. When you interact with um, women who want to do that, um, do you feel like they're excited? Like, is this just something to check off the list or is there an excitement to get rid of? First of all, is there a pressure release? And then do they, do they experience that after it happens? I think there's definitely um, a pressure release because, um, you know, like how you said before, there's so much pressure to like find your person and with women who decide to freeze their eggs, for example, it's kind of, oh, like, part of this pressure is being taken off from me. Um, it's kind of, you know, a little bit of a security blanket for the future of um, starting a family. Yeah. It's and funny, I when I asked that question, you both aggressively nodded yes. <laughs> and I just want, I know people can't see you, but I just need them to know that that was something that I got to witness. Um, go ahead, Leila, what were you going to say? Um, I just think, and, and obviously, you know, this is your domain, so you could probably speak to this better, but I feel like when you're dating, um, and especially if you are in the phase of life where you're thinking about children, um, you might be kind of tunnel vision in, in dating of, is this someone that I can have kids with? And, and you're kind of like 
stacking them up for strictly um, baby reasons versus all of the other reasons that you would date someone and, and be partners with someone. So I feel like taking that pressure off and saying, okay, I have you know, my eggs frozen if I ever need to use them. Like that's not what I need to focus on while I'm navigating the dating world. Have you heard of any creative ways that women may negotiate with their employer for that to be covered? So I've seen people who have encouraged their businesses uh, to roll out some sort of fertility coverage. Um, and, and they're the ones that kind of like push for it and then eventually the company starts, starts uh, doing it. Um, but I, again, it's, it's mostly, um, either they're re a really progressive company like the Facebooks and Googles that cover egg freezing, um, or they're the bigger banks and things like that, that because of the recent backlash, as much as I hate to say it, um, they're kind of making up for lost time of all the backlash that they've had and all the, um, you know, what, bad what press. Backlash? In, in terms of uh, not treating females the same in the workplace. Um, and so I think bigger banks and bigger corporations like that get hit really hard with those kinds of accusations. And so I think they're really coming around to um, having better fertility coverage and maternal, you know, maternal and postpartum care for their female employees, even for their, their male employees, the paternal um, stuff, paternity leave even, mm -hmm. things like that have changed drastically. What is, if someone were to do um, out of pocket, what are the costs of um, egg freezing or IVF? Um, I think it depends, you know, on the clinic you go to, but a, a rough estimate um, between like egg freezing or like a full IVF cycle with the genetic testing, I would say is probably somewhere from like nine to around 13,000 per cycle. If um, I wanted to freeze my eggs without IVF, it would still be nine to thirteen thousand. Well, no, it's either um, you do egg freezing or you do the embryo freezing and like genetic testing. Okay. So egg freezing will be a little bit cheaper just because you know it kind of stops at that point of retrieval. They freeze your eggs. If it's IVF, they have to um, uh, create the embryo and uh, you know biopsy it to do the testing, freeze it, and then um, in the future, you can use it for a transfer if it's, you know, chromosomally normal or a healthy embryo. So I would say a range from like nine to 13, and then medications are a separate cost. Um, it depends on the dosage that the woman would need to use, but that's, I would say, a range of around four to 6,000 a cycle. How long does a cycle last? Is that a month? Uh, no. So um, the stimulation itself is about, you know, 10 to 12 days on average. Some women will go a few days less. Some women will go a few days more lately. You can definitely attest more to that. Yeah. So it's typically 8 to 12 days of medications for the egg retrieval process. So 8 to 10 days of injectable medications. That's the other thing people don't realize. You will be injecting yourself on a daily basis for about eight to 12 days. Um, and then the egg ret retrieval procedure itself, which is a surgical procedure um, that you're completely asleep for, for about 20 minutes. Um, and then that's it. So I would say like a two to three week process, depending on how quickly or how slowly your body responds to the medications. What advice would you give to someone who is interested in looking at a fertility clinic? Like what are the right questions they should be asking 
whatever treatment center they go to to make sure that it's, you know, a reputable service, ethically um, sound and all that stuff. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I do with my business is that I help clients navigate who to go to based on their personality types. Do you need TLC? Do you care about bedside manner? Do you just want the hard stats? Um, and there are several websites, several accredited websites. So SART, S as in Sam, A-R-T as in train. <laughs> uh, SART is um, the database that gives all of the different um, statistical outcomes of the fertility clinics nationwide. So you can always go on there and check out their stats. Um, the lab, uh, the, the embryology lab is super important for any sort of IVF procedure. Um, that you'll be doing embryos, eggs, sperm, that kind of thing. Uh, if you're freezing, if you're preserving your fertility, the lab is super important. Um, but yeah, there are several accredited websites that you can check out. Um, and there's people like me who you can use to kind of hold your hand through the process. Who do I go to? When do I go? Um, if I'm trying, how long do I have to wait before I go? Um, and which test should I have done? Um, and then once you have your answer, again, people like me will guide you through what, what's the best treatment for you. So it's kind of like a supplement to your medical care. Um, one of the things that I think gets missed is that a lot of people go into things like egg freezing and it's kind of sold as a, uh, you know, one and done security blanket done. You, you froze your eggs. You're, you're great. Um, but you have to tell patients the pros and the cons of egg freezing and a lot of clinics unfortunately don't it's kind of like a don't ask don't tell as much as i hate to say it mm -hmm. um and i'm all for egg freezing i think if you have the means to do it you should absolutely do it you'll never regret doing it that's not what i'm saying i just think that um you should be you know getting some supplemental care outside of your fertility clinic to kind of walk you through the pros and the cons of all of this I think Layla nailed it, honestly. Um, I don't think a patient will ever regret it, but I definitely think that they should know what the pros and cons are of um, doing it. I'd love to know what is the most rewarding part of your job. This is, you know, obviously a very difficult decision sometimes for some people to do or a frustrating experience for many people, but I'd love to know, you know, what do you find rewarding about this? What keeps you going? I think for me... I genuinely feel like these babies are all my babies. Um, and I, I have my own children, but anytime that our patients send us a holiday card or, um, you know, send us their, their pictures after delivery and, and, you know, watching their children grow up, um, it, that's the most rewarding is just seeing how happy they are and, um, you know, all the different paths are, are, you know, that, that, that they take to get there. Um, especially if you have someone who's, I mean, we've had people that have cycled with us for three or four years for one child. And so seeing their struggle and then seeing them with their baby is really, really gratifying. One of my longest line of uh, holiday cards comes from one of my first patients who actually was a single mom by choice. She ended up doing an IUI. She didn't do IVF, but she had twins, spontaneous twins. Um, via the IUI, IUI procedure using donor sperm and her kids are now seven and she still sends me the holiday card every year and it's just I love it it makes me so happy I love that how about you Lisa what's rewarding about what you do 
Um, I think it's, you know, kind of being able to help people because I think they're in such a vulnerable state in their life. Either they're preserving their fertility or they, for unexplained reasons, cannot get pregnant on their own. And um, it's being there for their process and being a support system for them. And, you know, seeing the aftermath of it, of the pictures and um, seeing their kids grow up. Like I have a few patients that I keep in touch with. They ask for my phone number and they will text me for the holidays and will send me pictures of, of their kids or I even got to meet some of you know my patients kids and it's just so rewarding to see them grow up um it's definitely an emotional journey but it's a very rewarding one to see that is excellent you know um coming into this I didn't I didn't know a lot about this and what I was thinking about this morning before recording is that I feel like most people and tell me if I'm wrong, okay, but I feel like most people don't know anything about fertility unless they have to experience it personally. Again, both women are currently furiously <laughs> nodding yes. Um, and you know, this is why I wanted to kind of, you know, I don't want you to think I'm dumb. But you know, I want to come in asking questions that I think some people might at might be wondering, like, I, you know, I don't know anything about IVF, because I was very lucky <laughs> that I didn't I didn't, that was not something that we needed, but I knew that if I had questions, I did not know that people like Layla, who's a navigator <laughs> existed. Um, and now that I know that now I know who to refer people to, because I think that's also, you know, really daunting, um, in that whole, where do you begin, you know? Yeah. And the, the average person doesn't know anything about fertility. The average person doesn't even know anything about their, their periods. They don't know when their cycle begins, when it ends, um, how to look for ovulation. The average person does not know any of these things. We're not taught these things. There's no education there. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's one of the, the biggest issues. Um, and honestly, every time I meet someone and I tell them what I do, they're like, oh, I wish I knew about you before I went through IVF. So unfortunately again they don't know that these things exist and they don't have the basic education about their own you know menstrual cycles much less the fertility process and i think we spend so much of our younger lives trying not to get pregnant mm. and then think that it's you know it must be so easy if we have to try so hard not to get pregnant it must be so easy that when we do try it's just going to happen so i think there's that misconception as well i think one of the things people um don't talk about enough and hopefully you know it's a smaller pool of women or men that have to go through this or oncology patients um and i think um there have been like statistics that not many doctors or oncologists will um talk about fertility preservation before they go through their treatment because after that unfortunately many of them do not produce eggs or sperm anymore so, you know, it, it's very important if a patient has that diagnosis of cancer to have that conversation of, is it safe to do fertility preservation before starting a cancer treatment? Well, if someone were to do this, are they also given the tools of how to communicate it to future partners? Or is that like left on to their own figuring it out? Um, in what sense? Like, let's say you are single and you are a cancer survivor. I'm not going to mm -hmm. say like a specific cancer, just generally, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And you've been told, you know, please, you know, do um, preserve some eggs so that you have the opportunity to become a parent one day. Um, mm -hmm. 
are are there tools in this process that are given to like you know if when you start dating how do you is this a conversation that you need to have with your future partner like hey we're gonna have to do IVF because I survived cancer I mean we I don't think do it's- it we don't provide it but that's an excellent point and I think that that's something that should definitely be a part of your your dating spiel um, because you know children are a deal breaker for a lot of people so um, I think that's something you should unfortunately we don't we don't coach on that but that's an excellent point and I think that that's something you should disclose to any potential you know life partners I'm thinking right now on my with my little dating professional hat like I would disclose this when you're ready to disclose that you are a cancer survivor um, like that and and to me I've always noticed that anytime there's like a hard topic you know environment is everything and doing those conversations on a walk where you're not facing them eye to eye is just a lot easier but also just as I you know I hate I hate to say it but the way Layla said it you make it part of your spiel like you just it's 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 okay it's like you know it's it was a transitional period for you that you've survived and now you know you you get to have the opportunity for IVF because you live in the time that you live you know you could look at this as a positive and sell it as a positive I don't want to say sell it but like it is a positive right because 50 years ago this was not an option I always tell my patients that I think we're so lucky that we live in a world where we have the science and the medicine and, you know, the access um, to do things like this. Right. You know, like to test the embryos and to prevent your child from having a certain disease if you know, um, you know, both you and your partner are carriers for it. Or even there are certain like cancer genes that we can pass on and Mm -hmm. that can be tested for as well or to preserve your fertility. You know, there's so many things that we are lucky enough to have access to. Layla and Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Where can people find you if they want to learn more information about working with you? Sure. Um, My website is just fertilitytogether.com and my Instagram handle is the same, fertilitytogether. Um, And I have all the links to, you know, booking my free intro consults and things like that directly on my website and on my Instagram profile. Awesome. Thanks, Layla. And Lisa, do you want to share anything? Sure. Um, My Instagram handle is at L-I-Z-L-I-P-2-3. And I actually work for um, a pharmacy where um, it's called Alto Pharmacy. We do fertility medication. Um, We'll help you find, you know, if there are any discount programs you can use or stuff like that. Um, So you can always reach out um, for some guidance. That's awesome. I will include all of those links in the episode notes. So if anyone's interested in connecting with Layla or Lisa, please visit these show notes and uh, take it from there. Ladies, again, thank you so much for joining me on the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you'd like to speak to me on an upcoming hotline episode, make sure to follow me on Instagram at Matchmaker Maria. There on some days I post the link and we chat on the hotline one-on-one. Until then, you can learn more about what I do or enroll in an upcoming Agape intensive by visiting agapematch.com services. Thank you again for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. Be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.